most of us are familiar with Murphy's Law. Now, the original Murphy, for whom Murphy's Law is named, was Captain Edward A. Murphy. He was an electrical engineer. And Captain Murphy was working on a project for the Air Force in the late 1940s. And the project was designed to see exactly how much sudden deceleration a person could stand in a crash. Well, one day they conducted a test, and after they had conducted the test, Captain Murphy found that a transducer, whatever a transducer is, was wired wrong. So after cursing the technician who was responsible, Captain Murphy said, if there's any way to do it wrong, he'll find it. So now we have Murphy's Law. If anything can go wrong, it will. There are some other laws that have been blamed on Captain Murphy. Left alone... Things tend to go from bad to worse. If everything seems to be going well, you have probably overlooked something. Matter and physical possessions will be damaged in direct proportion to their monetary value. You will never find a lost article until you've replaced it. Everything goes wrong all at once. If anything can go wrong, it will. And that reminds me of a story I read the other day about a young mother who had eight small children. She went over to visit a neighbor one Saturday afternoon, and when she came home on that Saturday afternoon after visiting the neighbor, she discovered five of her youngest children all huddled together in a circle sitting in the living room. They were all sitting there in this circle, all five of these young children, concentrating intently on something that was captivating their attention. Well, the mother slipped in behind them to take a peek and see what it was they were doing, and her eyes got really big, and smack dab in the middle of her five kids were several baby skunks. So this mother screamed at the top of her voice, Children, run! So each child grabbed a skunk and ran to their bedroom. If anything can go wrong... It will. Folks, there is an epidemic sweeping our country today. And it's not cancer. It's not the flu. And it's not the common cold. And this outbreak that's sweeping our nation can be just as deadly as the most dreaded disease known to man. And you turn on the television and watch any news broadcast on any station for any length of time, and I can promise you it's going to afflict you with this. 
It's an epidemic of discouragement. It's universal. And discouragement is something that none of us are immune to. Even the most gifted and strong men of God have experienced discouragement at some point in their lives. Being discouraged once, it's, it's not like things like the mumps or, or other diseases that once you've had it, you can't, you've got an immunity and you can't get it again. Once you've been discouraged once, you do not have immunity to this disease. You can be discouraged over and over and over and over again. And something else about it. It is one of the most highly contagious, infectious diseases known to man. Discouragement can spread by the most casual of contact. And others can become disheartened because someone is discouraged. Someone who's discouraged can cause you to just be so bummed out, you say, well, what's the use? And it's a debilitating disease. It will stop you dead in your tracks. Anybody. Anybody can do more than the man or the woman that has lost heart. Discouragement is one of the most devastating enemies in existence. It's the enemy of every worthwhile project and every good individual. It's a disease that causes folks to believe success is an impossibility. So it brings the failure of a great many good projects. Because when you think you can't succeed, you just quit. You stop trying. There is no greater blight than the expectation of failure. Now, some folks, just like any other disease, some folks are more susceptible than others. There's some folks that are more prone to be discouraged than others. But write this down. All of us, all of us feel depressed from time to time. But when you turn to God's Word and you go to the Acts of the Apostles, you find an outstanding character there. One of the most outstanding characters of the New Testament. And he was a man that possessed an old and well-honored name. He had been named for one of the twelve sons of Jacob. He had in fact been named for the man that saved his people from starvation. But even though the name of Joseph was a good name, it was not good enough. So the apostles changed his name to Barnabas. When you read in Acts chapter 4 and verses 36 and 37, And Joseph, who was by the apostles surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The apostles changed his name to Barnabas. The King James Version says, by interpretation, that's the son of consolation. But I think Moffat 
comes closest to the true meaning. When Moffat says, the true meaning translated is the son of encouragement. The man with the time-honored name of Joseph was given a new name, and that name was Barnabas. And that name Barnabas meant a son of encouragement. Because you see, in a very real sense, Barnabas was a giver of courage. And if you study the Bible, you realize this giving of new names is a custom that had prevailed all through the centuries. Jacob, the, the trickster, after his spiritual crisis when he wrestled with God, he became known and God changed his name to Israel. When Jesus met the vacillating son of Jonah that we talked about last week, He gave him a new name, and that new name was Cephas, or Peter, meaning a rock. Jesus prophesied when He met Simon that this man would someday, this big impulsive raw-boned fisherman would someday become a rock of Christ-like character, and He did. We have a man in American history by the name of Andrew Jackson. That was the name that was given to him at birth by his parents. But he's known as Old Hickory. He won that name because of the toughness of his fiber. At the first battle of Bull Run, or sometimes known as the first battle of Manassas in the Civil War, sometimes known as the War of Northern Aggression, in that particular war, At that very first battle, the southern armies were being routed by the Union forces. And yet there was a general from Virginia that made a stand, and his army made a stand, and another general said, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. Rally around the Virginian. And so Thomas Jonathan Jackson became forever known in the annals of history as Stonewall Jackson. But of all the new names given, Old Hickory, Stonewall, Israel, Cephas, I don't think there's a name better or finer than the one that was given to Joseph. It tells us the kind of man that he was. It tells the calling that he gave himself to, morning, noon, and night. He was a man that brought courage to others. He was a man that knew how to put heart into the hopeless. He could change sobs into songs. He could transform tears into laughter. He was a man, Barnabas, when he found an unfortunate soul struggling along on four flat tires, he had the skill to send him on his way, riding on air once more. There is no art. There is no ability more beautiful than that. And there is none that's more important. Courage. Courage is essential to the joy of living. If you have lost your courage, if there is no hope springing up in your heart, then you are miserable. 
It does not matter what treasures you might have. It does not matter how full your hands might be when hope dies. We lose our zest for life. When we abound in hope, we're still rich. No matter how empty our hands may be. Courage is important because folks, there is no joy in life without courage. There's no usefulness without courage. There are folks who've lost hope and believe that wrong is forever on the throne. Like I said, watch the newscast. And for those folks, for those who've lost hope, for those who believe that wrong is forever on the throne, regardless of their ability, they've ceased to be a positive in this life. You remember when the mighty Elijah was whining under the juniper tree? He was worthless. When we lose hope, when we lose courage, when we lose our zest for life, we're changed from an asset to a liability. It doesn't matter how great the gifts God has put into our hands. You see, Barnabas earned this new name. Barnabas earned this new name because of a wise use of the material possessions God had given him. He earned it because of a wise use of his wealth. Sometimes we speak of money as if it is something of no importance at all. If we've never known the pinch of poverty, it's an easy thing to do. But write this down. Money is power. It's a power we can use to change hope into despair. It's also a power that we can use to change despair into hope. It can enable us to give material bread that may become the very bread of life to the one who receives it. Look at the picture of what was happening in that first century. Look at the context of Acts chapter 4. There were among those early saints there in Jerusalem... Those who had cut themselves off from their loved ones by virtue of the fact that they had become Christians. And as a result of being cut off from their loved ones because they had become Christians, these saints were facing dire poverty. And for them, material assistance was a necessity. Barnabas, this son of encouragement, helped meet the need. He sold a field. He brought the money to the apostles. And so what he did was he changed his money into hope for those hopeless saints. But that's not all he encouraged folks in. Barnabas encouraged folks by the proclamation of the gospel. 
Barnabas told those he came in contact with about the good news of Jesus Christ. If you and I have an eagerness in our hearts to put hope into the lives of the hopeless, then we have to give them the gospel. Because by sharing the unsearchable riches of Christ, we can change want to wealth in people's lives. You see, Barnabas had a way of encouraging people because he believed in them. You know, there are times that that's the most helpful thing we can do for someone else. Is believe in them. Think about Paul. He was known as Saul. He was the one who was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He was the one who made havoc of the church. And on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians... That great light shone around him and it knocked him down. And he says, and he heard a voice and he saw an old man and said, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. And he went into the city and Ananias the preacher came and Saul was baptized. And then he goes back to Jerusalem after he's become a Christian. His former friends hated him. Hate him with the hatred that men give only to a traitor. And quite naturally, now that Saul has come back to Jerusalem after becoming a Christian, his old friends want nothing to do with him. And sadly, the Christians there in the Jerusalem church that should have welcomed their new brother with open arms, oh, they stood aloof from him. Oh, it wasn't from hatred. It was from fear. They remembered what he had been. There were those among them that had probably suffered at his hands. There were some that had probably been imprisoned even by him. And others had no doubt seen their loved ones stoned to death because of the opposition of Saul. And so the brethren in Jerusalem wouldn't receive him because nobody there trusted him. But there was one exception. There was one man there who trusted Paul. And that man was Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Barnabas listened to his story, and Barnabas believed in the genuineness of his conversion to become a Christian. And so, so in thus believing that, Barnabas staked his own life and the life of his fellow Christians on the conviction that Saul, Paul, was worthy of confidence. So it was Barnabas that brought Paul to the Jerusalem church, introduced him there, and brought him into the brotherhood of the Jerusalem saints. It was that same Barnabas who believed in John Mark even though he had been an utter failure. On that first missionary adventure, John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas. But along the way, he played the coward and he deserted him and he hurried back to Jerusalem. He wanted to go home to Mama. And if that desertion hit Paul hard, folks, it had to have hit Barnabas even harder. He and Mark were cousins. 
But in spite of the cowardly desertion on the part of John Mark, Barnabas carried on. And at last, he and Paul came back with a wonderful story to tell of all the wonderful things God had done through them. Now picture the scene a little later. Paul suggests that he and Barnabas take a second missionary trip. Go back and revisit the churches they've planted and go back and plant other churches. And quickly, with eagerness, Barnabas said, Yes, let's do that. He agreed. Let's do it. And I can almost, by an ear of faith, hear, Paul, hear Barnabas say, Hey, we can take John Mark with us. And I can hear Paul say, Not on your life. He's not the kind of thing missionaries are made of. He deserted us on that first journey. I'm not taking him. Barnabas persists. Let's take John Mark. Paul insists we will not. And so because Paul could not trust John Mark, and because the son of encouragement couldn't give him up on him, give up on him, those two great good men, Paul and Barnabas, parted company and they went their separate ways. Which one of them was right? Paul would be the very first to acknowledge Barnabas was right. Because if you look at Paul's second letter to the young preacher Timothy, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's in a dungeon. Winter is coming. He knows that he's about to be offered. He says, I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. A God, the righteous judge, shall give to me in that day, and not to me only, but to all them that love is appearing. The very next sentence, Take Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. The unprofitable had become profitable. Barnabas wouldn't give up on him. Barnabas gave him another chance. Barnabas encouraged folks by believing in them. He encouraged people by what he did. He encouraged people by what he said. He encouraged people by what he was. Dr. Luke says he was a good man. That idea of goodness maybe is not something that thrills people in the 21st century. But in reality, that's the finest quality a soul can possess. That's the best thing we can say about any man. He's a good man. And the fact that Barnabas was a good man encouraged others to be good. This new name was not given to Barnabas when he was born or in his early youth. It wasn't a name that was given to him while he was a Jew still in Cyprus. It was a name that was given to him by the apostles. It was a name that was given to Barnabas after he'd become a Christian. And he began to win this new name when he became a new creation in Jesus Christ. That is our mission and that is our work. Being a son or a daughter of encouragement is the work of every Christian. It's a vocation that is as important as it is beautiful. And it's open to every one of us. Sometimes it's easier to criticize and destroy than it is to 
build up. And we meet critics everywhere. And you know what a critic is. That's a person that would say it, sing it, preach it, teach it, write it, paint it. Like you should. If they could. All of us have at some point been on the receiving end of criticism in our lives. Some of it, oftentimes, is quite unjust. Some of it is ill-informed. Some of it's even mean-spirited. What we must do, we must seek to emulate the life of Barnabas and be an encouragement to others. We can succeed at that if we give ourselves to Jesus Christ. If we look on life through the eyes that have seen Jesus. If we look on lives and if we live our lives with Jesus Christ as the Lord and Master of our lives. The Lord and Master of all of our lives. And for Jesus to be the Lord and Master of all of our life, we've got to know Jesus Christ. We've got to know Him in the sense that we've become His followers. That we have believed in Him, that we've repented of sin, we've confessed His name, and been buried in the waters of baptism. And He says, Be thou faithful to death, and I'll give you a crown of life. And we can say with Paul, that crown of life is waiting for us. So the question before the house is, Have you come to know Jesus Christ? It's his imitation as we stand in my way.